I want to read you this morning our text in its entirety before I actually begin to speak. And so if you would turn to Matthew chapter 7. If you happen to be our guest this morning, we are studying through, uh, first time guest, we're studying through the Sermon on the Mount, which in Matthew's gospel is recorded for us in five chapters, five, six, and seven. We've maintained from the beginning that Matthew's compilation of Jesus' sayings is probably a little bit larger than what Jesus actually delivered in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, this material has been lumped together uh, by him as a sermon, and so we're studying it as such. And we've actually, um, we've actually come to chapter 7, and we're going to begin with verse 13. Got your Bibles? Let me read. You follow along. I'm going to read this morning from the ESV. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, it can, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his home, his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against the house and, and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let me pray for us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us. Amen. I read that prayer this morning and I wrote it in my notes because I wanted to pray it. It's an old Anglican prayer and uh, it just spoke to me. What we know not, Lord, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us. We come to the last, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people have said that the Sermon on the Mount isn't for Christians. It's not for New Testament Christians. It's for Old Testament Israel under the first covenant. I say to that, fooey, fooey. This text has been for all of us. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the ones who are to put away lust and kill anger in your lives. You are the ones who are to love your enemies. You are the ones who are to love your spouses till death do you part. You are the ones to whom Jesus is directing these words because this, he was directing it towards his disciples and that is who we are. 
Today we read that Jesus, as we read Jesus as he teaches us in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Jesus begins the text this morning by telling us that there are two destinies that lie before us. One of them is life and the other is destruction. The word there used for destruction is apollyon, which though it has a range of meaning, its most common meaning is to destroy completely. The word used in the context of, of humanity to destroy humanity refers to killing humanity, slaying humanity, or to humanity dying. So juxtaposed against what Jesus says are the two destinies, one of them being life, one of them being destruction. It seems pretty reasonable for us to assume that the two destinies that lie before us are life and death. You can have life, immortality, with God. You can choose life or you can choose death and destruction. Since all men die at least once, it appears that Jesus is not referencing our first death because all men will die. There's nothing you can do about it. It's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. So there's only, there, all men are going to die. So since he's referencing this, it seems logical that he's not talking about our first death, but he's talking about potential destinies after our first death. He's talking about life and destruction, which follows death. Now, I think Jesus elaborates this on John chapter 5. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles, or you're welcome just to listen. I think I have the text up behind me on the screen. And these are going to be the three texts I'm, I'm reading from. But Jesus elaborates on this, I believe, in John's gospel, chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds. And actually the word is deeds is not in there. It should, could be read, who did the good to resurrection of life and to those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Now here's what Jesus says. All men will rise again. All men are going to rise again. I think sometimes that escapes us. We don't talk about it enough. I've been talking about it a lot in the last couple of years. But all men will rise again. The wicked and the righteous will rise again. And Jesus said, some will rise to eternal life. Immortality, never to die again. Others will rise to face the judgment of God. Now in Revelation 20, John, the apostle, same guy who wrote John 5, he says this, he has a vision in, in where he sees the Lord Jesus. Listen to what he says, John, Revelation 20, verse 11, John says, Then I saw a great white throne. 
and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were, dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now notice, now notice in both these passages we read the same thing. All men rise from the dead. In this passage, some will rise to experience resurrection and their name is written in the book of life. And they inherit immortality. They are given eternal life. They will never die again. But the others will rise to an experience which John calls the lake of fire and then says is the second death. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24, preaching, I think before Felix or Festus, I can't remember which, but this is what he says. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. The Apostle Paul, preaching and teaching in the book of Acts, says that all men will rise again to face God, and their names will either be written in the Lamb's book of life, and they will have eternal life, or they will enter into the judgment of, a, of God. According to Revelation 20, verse 14, this vision of a lake of fire is defined for us or described for us or named for us the second death. Their death will be eternal. They will never live again. And according to Daniel chapter 12, they will rise to live, they will rise to a shame and a disgrace that is everlasting. So, I, so Jesus speaks of these two destinies. One of them is life and one of them is destruction. One of them is immortality and one of them is judgment. And this twofold comparison that Jesus exercises in this verse, he carries on with it and it's actually a Jewish literature style. It's, it's a way they would write in Jewish literature and they would speak. And so Jesus carries this twofold comparison on. And Jesus says there are two gates that are going to lead you to these two destinies. And there are two roads that are going to lead you to those two gates that lead to two destinies. And there are two crowds that are traveling these two roads that lead to these two gates that lead you to two different destinies. Let's talk about the gates. Jesus says of the gates in the text before us, one of them is narrow and one of them is wide. The picture is a gate that is restrictive. The picture is a gate that not everybody can get through because there's something very small about this gate. The other gate is all-encompassing. The other gate is very wide. You can go in there without any restrictions whatsoever. 
I was going to wait to the end of this talk to talk about what the gate is, but I couldn't get away from talking about what the gate is now. We have to talk about what the narrow gate is and what the broad gate is. What is the narrow gate? Now, succinctly, Jesus does not tell us. It doesn't tell us in the text. Do you see it? I don't see it. It doesn't tell us what the gate is. However, he does tell us what the gate is in another place in the scriptures. In John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus again speaking, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I think we could say gate there very easily. I am the gate of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life, eternal life, immortality with me, a relationship that goes on with me forever and ever and ever. I have come that they might have life, that their joy might be made full and they might have life abundantly. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the gate. He's the narrow gate that leads to life. There are not multiple doors. There's not a wide door. There is only one narrow door, and that door is the Lord Jesus. On the night that Jesus was, before he was to be crucified, he meets with his disciples. I believe it's the night before. And, and Jesus says to them when they ask the question, how do we get there? How do we get to be with you in eternity? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to God except through me. Listen, one thing we have to understand is, is Jesus is very narrow. And our culture and everything wants to make it really, really broad. But Jesus said, no, it's an exclusive, narrow gate. And you only come in through me. The two paths are just like the gates. They're just, as, they're just as different from one another as the two gates are. The two paths, one of them is broad and the other is hard. Literally, we'll see that in just a minute. Jesus, as he talks about the paths that lead to the gates, he's saying that one of them accommodates everybody. It's broad. Everybody can be on it. And it's the cry of our present day and our present culture. We talked about this last week. All morality is equal. All truth is, is, is subjective. There is no objective truth. The broad, ray, the broad road accommodates everything that you want to believe. In fact, everybody's welcome on the broad road unless you believe there's not really a broad road and you believe there's a narrow road. Then you're not welcome on the broad road, okay? And, and so, but Jesus is saying there's a broad road that doesn't restrict anything. I mean, it's just believe whatever you want. Come, come any way you want, you know. But then Jesus says, but there's a narrow road. But he also uses the word hard road for this narrow road that leads to life. When I, when I thought about this verse, immediately this picture came to mind. Uh, and I, I think it's going to be on the screen. Go, go to the next picture. This picture came to mind when I thought of the hard road or the narrow road. I, I thought of a road that's very, very restrictive and very hard to be on, right? And, and Jesus is saying that is the road that leads to the narrow, small gate. That is me, by the way, that you have, that by which you have eternal life. There is only this narrow, narrow road that gets there. Now, 
the road that leads to life or, or leads to the gate is hard, he says. And, and here's one thing that we, I want you to know about that word hard. That word hard translated everywhere else in the Bible is translated like afflicted and persecuted and harassed and oppressed. So here's what Jesus is literally saying. The narrow road is a road on which you will be opposed. It is a road on which you will be persecuted. It is a road on which you will be oppressed. Now, you know, I have to say this for, for a friend of mine who wrote a book on this whole very subject. We as Americans have lived in a bubble where we have not experienced persecution or oppression for our faith. In fact, for the last 300 years, our culture has been affected and influenced by the gospel and by the truth of the word of God in such a way that we have not endured persecution for our faith. None of us has to face the, you know, being killed or martyred for our faith in America because, because the gospel has so permeated our culture. So we've lived in a bubble. The rest of the world has not lived like we have in the rest of the centuries and decades. I mean, even in England, even in England, when men were beginning to come back to the Word of God and believe the Word of God, and they, they wanted to take the Word of God to the commoner like you and me, when they did so, people killed them for it. In England, our mother country, from where we came, America has been an anomaly. America has been a bubble of protection for the body of Christ. We have not endured persecution. Now, now some would argue, and, and I would tend to agree, that we may see the end of that coming down the pike, not too long in the future, right? But we've endured this bubble. But throughout the centuries, it's not been that way. On the narrow road that leads to life, you have been, you, our brothers and sisters have been oppressed. And they have been afflicted and they have been persecuted for their faith. And Jesus warned them. He said, you know, the road that leads to the small gate, that leads to life, that's going to be a hard road for you will be oppressed. Now, let me say this. Even though we have not been physically oppressed and are persecuted or martyred in America for, for our faith, you know, there has always and always be opposition for you when you're on this road, this narrow road. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So we have two gates and two paths. We have two crowds. One, one is many and one is few. Here's the truth. We're all born with a fallen and sinful nature that leads us to sin that I believe puts us on the broad road. No escaping the inevitable, no exceptions. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The crowd on the broad road is all of us who at one point or another, you know, have, have, have been, are in rebellion against God, okay? The narrow road, the hard road has a few people on it. Jesus said, few find it, few find it. The crowd traveling that hard road is small. Now, I've often heard people say that God's new earth will have millions and millions of people on it. Okay, it's going to have just myriads and myriads of people on there. And the number of, of those who are the saved will be vast. And you know, I want to say that might be true. As a fact, in, Reve in, in Revelation, there is a verse that says there'll be myriads and myriads and myriads of creatures before, including us, you know, uh, before the throne of God in, in, the new, in the new thing that God's planning and preparing for us. But, but you know what? As, I, as hard as I could find it, I mean, as hard as I looked, I couldn't find a verse that said there's going to be myriads and myriads of us. It says there's going to be myriads and myriads of angels and creatures and us. You know, here's, here's what Jesus says. Few are going to find the narrow road. Few are going to find it. When you think of Noah in his day, how many were on the boat that were saved when God destroyed the whole world? 
How many? Eight. All right. How many were, how many, when, when uh, Elijah stood against the prophets of Baal? 7,000, right? Remember, he thought he was the only one. And God said, you know, quit moaning and crying, man. I got 7,000 people. But, you know, 7,000, that's just slightly more than Surrey County. Out of maybe millions of Jews, only 7,000 hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. You know, I believe what Jesus is telling us is that most people will miss life. I think he's telling most people are going to miss life. They will, not, they will not be on the hard path that leads to the narrow gate. They will not enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. I would suggest that most probably don't even care much about the gate that leads to life. That brings me to the next segment of the text. And here's my point. From the, here's the point I think Jesus wants to make from the next segment of the text. Make sure no one leads you off the narrow path that leads to life. If you find the narrow path and you're on the narrow path that leads to the gate, make sure you don't, you don't leave the narrow path that leads to the narrow gate. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from the thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says many false prophets are going to try to get you off the narrow path. Many are going to seek to dislodge you on your way to the narrow gate. In fact, Jesus would say there'll be many, or the Bible would say there'll be many false teachers and false elders and false apostles who will come after me. And their whole goal is going to be to derail you. And notice this, he says, they will be dressed like sheep. They're going to look like you. But on the inside, they're going to really be ravenous wolves who really want your destruction. That's what they're going to be. In every case, Jesus says to, the, to, to us, he said, be aware of them. They look like us on the outside. So how am I to know what's a sheep and what's a wolf? How am I to know that? Well, Jesus answers the question, doesn't he? He says, you're going to know them the same way you know an apple tree. How do you know an apple tree? You walk up to the apple tree and, and you walk up to the tree. How do you know it's an apple tree? Answer me. It's got apples on it, right? You see it's fruit. That's an apple tree. You walk up to a tree. How do you know it's an orange tree? It's got oranges on it, right? You look at it by the fruits. And so Jesus said, here's how you're going to know a false prophet, a false teacher, a false apostle, a false elder. Here's how you're going to know them. He said, you're going to look at their fruits and you're going to know them by their fruits. So the next question ought to be, well, what is the fruit I'm looking for? Is your, mind, is your mind tracking with Jesus? What's the fruit? Okay. Now, my mind asked that question right away. And I thought to myself, maybe you did as well. Well, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And that was where my mind went first. But you know what? I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to. After all, let me ask you a question. Isn't the love, joy, peace, patience, kind? isn't that the sheep's clothing? Isn't that the outward stuff that, that we're supposed to see in our lives, the character things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control? You know, we can have really good, nice, kind people who are false prophets and false teachers who are seeking to derail people off the trail, right, off the, off the hard path. So how, how, 
what is the fruit? Well, I think, I think we can find an answer to that. Scripture interprets Scripture. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 through verse 37, if you're taking notes. It's a close parallel to this same gospel, Matthew. Jesus is speaking. Listen to what he says. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of what, that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." Now, I, I don't for a minute think that you're, the fruit of the Spirit isn't some sort of fruit by which we ought to judge, but I believe that the fruit that Jesus says you recognize a false prophet by is going to be the words from his mouth. It's going to be what he says. That's what we're to look at. What does he teach? That's the fruit that you need to note. Now, we are a church. Let me say this if you happen to be our guest. We are a church that believes that God has revealed his truth in what we call the Bible today. Now, I recognize, I say this without shame, I say this without equivocation, I say this with all the power of my heart, that's a faith affirmation for us. We recognize that, but you know what? By faith, we believe God has revealed himself in the word of God, and we believe the Bible to be God's word. So a false prophet is someone who comes and rejects the word of God. A false prophet, a false teacher, a false prophet, a false elder is going to be someone who teaches you to reject the Word of God. The point of the Reformation spear became the revelation and authority of the Bible. Follow me for just a moment, because it was the Bible that led Martin Luther and other reformers to accept that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they came to that conclusion because that is what the Bible taught. And so the point of the Reformation spear became the authority of the Word of God. It became the truthfulness of the Word of God. The reformers sought to bring people back to the truthfulness of the Bible. And, and forgive me if you've been on Wednesday night. On Wednesday night, we're, we're doing this thing called Wednesday night uh, theology. And we're, we're trying to just look at some biblical truths and on Wednesday night. Love to have you come and be a part of that. But on the last two Wednesday nights, I've quoted this verse two times. I mean, on each Wednesday. So forgive me if you've been here. But I needed to quote it again. Martin Luther, he's on trial by the Catholic Church. He is tell, he's told to recant what he teaches and what he believes. And he'll live. If not, they're going to kill him. And Martin Luther said this after a day of thinking about it. And I quote, Since then your majesty and your lordship's desire to reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. And I'm telling you folks, that, that is the cry of a man or woman who is not a false teacher. The word of God is their truth. The false teacher denies the word of God. He denies its clear and plain teaching. All right. Now, now let me, let me please note that there is a difference between someone who wrongly understands the Bible and one who denies its clear teaching. 
And, and so this can get a little fuzzy. It can get a little fuzzy there. But, but you know what? That's, the false teacher is one who denies the clear teaching of the word of God. So you watch out, Jesus says. Be on your guard. Don't be led off the narrow, hard path that leads to the small, narrow gate that is Christ himself. And that brings me to the next segment. Make sure you are not self-deceived about your own journey on the narrow path that leads to life. And you see, I, th this is a passage where I believe that everything is connected. I believe there's a connection. I say it again. It should be on the screen behind me. Make sure you are not self-deceived about your own journey on the narrow path that leads to life. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Now, I've shared before, man, those verses there were the ones that God used to arrest my tension as I'm just kind of bebopping along in my 19-year-old life. And as I read those verses, I, I was readily, to, I, I readily admitted that I was one who said, Lord, Lord, but didn't do what Jesus said. I readily admitted it. And when I read that and I saw that, it was enough to arrest my attention and to say, Hey, Jimmy, what goes? What gives? How is it that you claim lordship? You claim Jesus is your savior, but you are not following Jesus. How is that? And I'm telling you, God used that to arrest my tension. Jesus is telling his followers this, that there are some of you that think that you're on the narrow path, but you are on the broad road. And you know what's really sad is they don't know it until they've entered in through the broad gate and, and, and it's too late. It's too late. They, they entered into the broad, they entered the broad gate and they thought they were entering the narrow gate. And what was shocking to them was that they had lived a life of religious activity. Do you see that? He says, hey, Lord, we prophesied and cast out demons in your name. And yet Jesus has the audacity to tell them, I never knew you. That's scary, isn't it? People who are so self-deceived, thinking that they're on this road, this narrow road that leads to life, and they are not. And they are not. Now, now can I tell you, let's, let's put that in the modern day, 2017 year. You can do all sorts of religious activity, like i.e. go to church, be in youth group, help out on the new building, work in a homeless shelter, do this ministry or do that ministry, and in reality, you are not on the narrow path that leads to life. That is possible. That is scary. Now look at what Jesus calls them. He says, you workers of lawlessness. Now here's the deal. They did religious things, but in their lives they were filled with sin and they did contrary to God's will and God's word. I'm 19 years old. This is my testimony. I know that my life is filled with things that I know are wrong for the follower of Christ. I'm not following Christ. I'm doing what I want to do. And yet I'm still doing religious things like going to church and, and still claiming to be a Christian because I go to church and because I believe certain things. But I am not following Jesus. 
And I'm telling you, if there's not a description of my life, and if there's not a description of so many people's lives in, in, in the North American church of the Lord Jesus, I, I don't know what is. In Luke's gospel, in this same context, Jesus asked the question, and in fact, I thought I read it here in Matthew as well. Uh, why do you, no, it's not in Matthew. In Luke's context, Jesus asked them this question. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? In John chapter 15, Jesus speaking, I think, on the same subject. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We are self-deceived when we think we are on this hard path, but we are not seeking to abide, remain, and obey the commandments of the Lord Jesus. The follower of the Lord Jesus is the one man or woman who by faith truly follows Jesus, what he taught. We just don't perform religious activities or merely profess faith. We actually live it. So that the Apostle James would say this, faith that saves, faith that's on the narrow path is faith that leads us to action, to holiness, to obedience to Jesus. Now, if you're wondering where that's found in the book of James, that's my paraphrase, all right? So you won't find it exactly like that. But that's what James is saying. You are not a follower if your life is not given to obey the one you follow. Jesus, continually listen to me. Don't write me off. Don't close me down because you know the gospel. In fact, I'm going to talk about the gospel in just a minute. Jesus holds out perfection continually as our goal. Continually he holds it out. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus never held out anything in front of us as the goal for which we are to live and strive for as followers of Christ other than absolute holiness. You know, we are to strive for, live for, be holy in our lives, okay? Now, that's the goal. Now, Jesus, the Bible says he knows we're but dust. He knows our frailties. He knows that we cannot be perfect. In fact, listen, let me back up for a second. Listen, this is where the gospel comes in. You can't be perfect. You never could. You never will. Even now, as one who's received a new heart from Christ, you can never be perfect. Christ is your perfection. That is the good news. Christ died for you because he was perfect. He gives you his perfection. That's the gospel. But when we talk about the gospel and we just somehow over here ignore what the Bible calls us to, which is absolute holiness, we, we are defaming God's gospel. We, we are belittling it. We're misunderstanding it. Listen, it is by grace that I've been saved, not because I live in holiness, but having been saved by grace, I am to be holy. And I'm telling you, there's one, there's one man here this morning who's greatly been convicted already by my talk. Listen, we, we are called on by God to be perfect, even as our Father is perfect. And Jesus knows we'll never be perfect. So what he's looking for in every one of our lives is progress. So he's looking for, he's looking for progress. You know, the constant call for maturity in the Bible, you know what it is? It means growing. It means being more like Christ. This is the will of God for you, that you be conformed to the image of Christ, every one of you. You're to be more and more like Jesus. When I was born again, I was a babe in Christ. I was a newborn. 
I'm not a newborn anymore. I'm 35 years old in the Lord. You know, I should, I should be different than I was back here. Why? Because grace saved me, gave me a new heart, gave me his spirit so that I can be more like him. And so Jesus is saying to us here, he's saying, um, you know, you are to follow my will. The, the person who says they know me, but isn't seeking and, and seeking to live and follow me, you've misunderstood. Now let's go on, because he gives an illustration to this very point. Verse 24, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, what a great visual representation we've had this summer. I mean, it's sad because so many friends and, and fellow Americans lost their, their homes and so many brothers and sisters in Christ lost their homes and everything. But what a great picture we've had of the storm surge washing away homes that were not built with, you know, maybe these storms couldn't have held up to any, no house could have stood up to them. But, but houses, here's Jesus' point, houses who have a foundation burrowed in the rock. When the storm surge comes, it's battered, it's beaten, but it stands. But the house that's built just on the sand, the storm surge comes, and with little effort or to none, it washes it away. Now, what is the storm? The storm is obviously the judgment of God. The storm is at the end, right? The storm is when we go through the broad or the narrow gate. And Jesus said, listen, if you are, if you are a man or a woman who hears my words and they're listening to the words of Jesus that very day, and he's saying, if you hear my words and you don't, and they don't, you don't live by them, you're, you're, if you don't apply them to your life, he said, you're going to be that person. When you go through the broad gate, the storms of God's judgment are going to wash away the house of your life. Your life will be destruction. Let's go back to the beginning. Enter through the narrow gate that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction. Your, your, your home, your life will be destroyed unless you found your life and you, you follow me. Jesus is saying, if, if you don't obey my words, if you don't submit yourself to me, then, then you will be destroyed. And Luke adds these words, and the destruction of that house or that life will be great. Matthew ends the sermon on, on the mount by saying in verse 28, and then Jesus finished these sayings and the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You know, I got this mental picture. Do you get it? Jesus finishes saying this, probably says, probably says that last part with some degree of authority or whatever, and, and it's quiet. Jesus doesn't say the end. He doesn't say, bow your heads, let's be dismissed in prayer. He just stops talking. And I have this mental picture of everybody just absolutely quiet in awe at what they just heard. Now, I wonder this morning, are we spellbound with Jesus' authority and by what he says. Do these words challenge us to our very core? Are there, we just say, oh, that's really neat. I wonder if these words just rivet our heart like they riveted the hearts of those who listened. 
I want to end this morning with the parallel in Luke's passage. It's a bit different setting than this. It's obviously the same sort of thing. In fact, my tendency is to think that this is the follow-up to what Matthew records for us after the narrow way, okay? But it's a little bit different setting. It's, uh, it's, it's actually going to have a different conclusion. But, but you listen because Jesus is undoubtedly talking about the same thing. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. And Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? I think they asked that question in response to the narrow gate thing that Jesus just said. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence through this closed door. And you taught, or this closed gate, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now, I'm telling you, I was so tempted to, there's so much I'd like to say about that and continuing on in this thought, but I'm I'm not going to do that. I want to draw your attention just to Jesus' first words as they asked him, how many will be saved? Or it's just a few. Notice what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter the narrow gate. The word strive is the Greek word agonizomai. You probably already know what the English derivative is from that. It's to agonize. The word is often translated fight for, struggle for, agonize for. Fight to enter the narrow gate. Agonize to enter the narrow gate. If you see the value of life, If you long for immortality in a world that God has created for those who love him, if you long for eternal relationships that that are lived out of love, fight for the gate. Strive for the gate. Agonize to make it through the narrow gate because many will but won't. In fact, few are going to find it. And don't let anyone derail you. Don't let anyone get you off of the path. Examine yourself to make sure you truly are on the narrow path. Listen to me, everyone. I don't care if you're old or young. Examine yourself to make sure you're on the path. The apostle Paul told us that. He said, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Don't be deceived. Only 40% of Americans believe there's a broad road and a wide gate that leads to destruction. That's down from 70% 13 years ago. So you see, we're we're rapidly losing the idea that there's even a broad road or a broad gate. But of those who believe in the broad gate and the broad road, only 10% of men believe they are on that road, while 6% of women believe they are on it. Either they are wrong or Jesus is wrong. 
Don't be deceived. Today, I want to call on you to choose life. I want you to choose to enter through the narrow gate and begin walking on the hard path that leads to the narrow gate. You say, Jimmy, how do I do that? How do I enter the narrow gate when, 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 when the time comes? How do I get through the narrow gate? How am I on? Where's this narrow path? Here it is. It's the narrow path and the narrow gate. The narrow gate is Jesus, but you enter there by faith. Faith. Faith is how we enter the narrow gate. Faith is how we walk on the hard path. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus and you are in no wise removed or you're in no wise knocked off of that faith. I tell you, I have someone I love who one time said, by faith, I'm, I'm striving for the narrow gate and I'm on the road that leads to life. No longer there. I know others who once said, I was on, I'm on the path, but I'm not on the path anymore. Faith is truly trusting Jesus. It is trusting so that we follow. I've said this before. There is no faith that does not follow. There is no saving faith. That's the whole point of James' little book in, in, the, in that chapter 2. That's his whole point. There is no faith that does not follow. True faith follows. And so it was in the context of taking the Lord's Supper that the Apostle Paul says, examine yourself. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.